Good morning. My name is Reverend Maddie Sol Caballero. You can call me Reverend Maddie. And I am so, so glad to see each and every one of you. We start every Sunday by saying, let's remember that we come from a huge heritage that recognizes that within each and every one of us resides a spark of the divine. So I like to say, turn, turn to the folks all around you and say hello to a little piece of God. Please join me, help us light our chalice, the symbol of our faith, the words that we say together are in your orders of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm Margaret Borden. Our call to worship this morning is by Jane Maudlin. For our community gathered here, for the spirit that called us together and drew us to this place, we give thanks this day. For moments we have shared with others, for times when we have reached out across barriers of distance and fear, for times when others have reached out to us, for moments when we have discovered another along our path, we give thanks this day. For this community of celebration and growth, introspection and solitude, and for those moments of that peace which passes all understanding, we give thanks this day. For our gathering together out of distant places, for our weaving together out of many separate selves this hour of celebration and worship, we give thanks this day. This past Tuesday, we were very lucky to celebrate the close of a Ramadan fasting day with a community of very hospitable Muslims, from mostly from Turkey, part of the Dialogue Institute, who came here, brought us food here, and fed us till we almost popped. <laughs> and shared their culture and wanted to know about our religious faith. And it was just beautiful. And they want to come back next year and celebrate Iftar with us again. But I was so very, very proud to, when they asked, you know, tell us a little bit about your church and, you know, give a little spiel. I was able, we were in Houston Hall, and I was able to point to two very big documents upon those partitions there. And one is our, uh, we wrote together our, our covenant statement, our statement of healthy relations. And that's how, you know, we get together, even with all our different beliefs. We come from so many different beliefs. And that's how we agree to be together. It's not that we don't believe anything in common. That's it. That's it, in addition to our seven principles. It's unique to our congregation. And also unique to our congregation that I was proud to point out that kind of sums up what we're about is our mission statement. So please help me reaffirm it as we do each week. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is titled... A Night in the Hospital Room, and it's by Vanessa Rush Southern. 
A couple of years ago, I flew to Michigan in the midst of December snowstorms and holiday preparations to be with my Aunt Nancy. I had spent almost all the summers of my life with Nancy from age nine onward. Over time, she became another mother to me. She was an aunt by marriage, but made room for me as if I were her own. Before long, I was leaving home the day after school let out and got to spending the whole summer with her and my uncle and my two cousins, returning home just in time for the year to begin. This time, however, I was headed to see her under the worst of circumstances. She was at the end of a long struggle with cancer. She would not survive. When I arrived, she was in particularly rough shape. The pain management team at the hospital had not quite gotten her symptoms under control, so she was sick to her stomach and in pain. I offered to stay the night. Nancy and I had become somewhat distant in the few years before I came to the hospital. She and my uncle had divorced, and somehow keeping me close must have felt awkward to her. Her phone calls became more infrequent, and uncertain how to convince her I could love them both. I had let the space grow between us. However, here I was in her hospital room, and there were things to be done, most of them reminiscent of so much of what she had done for me over the years when I got a summer cold or a stomach virus. I was returning the favor. I held her hair when she got sick. I pressed cold compresses to her hot forehead. I said what soothing words I could think to say. For the first few hours that night, it was all we could do just to keep up with her discomfort. Then, at some point in the night, a nurse changed the dosage levels of some medication, and the worst of Nancy's symptoms quieted. I could see her body relax and take it easy for a stretch. All of a sudden, in the darkest part of the night, the room was quiet, and her spirits perked up. Not knowing how long this would last, I took the opportunity to tell my aunt what I needed her to know. I thanked her for all the summers together and the idyllic times we had, part cheesy late into the night, old movies with all of us curled up like a pile of puppies on the couch. I thanked her for welcoming me with her characteristic show of delight every time I entered a room. And I said what I really needed her to know. I thanked her for loving a girl she really didn't have to. I let her know that who she was and how she loved me shaped who I have become. This aunt, you should know, wasn't given to maudlin shows of emotion. She ritually ended every summer with a kiss and turning her back with an I'll see you soon. She hated goodbyes. And she knew, and I knew without saying so, that this was one. I knew she didn't want to have this conversation, <clears throat> but she listened. When I was finished, she said, as if she were confused by the whole exchange, How could I not love you? I loved you the moment I first saw you. As a child, if you're lucky, you always know you're loved. 
but perhaps you wonder too if you'll ever lose it. How conditional is it? Do your parents love you because they have to? How lovable are you, really? So you try to please the adults around you. Behave, look cute, clean up, read the cues. To be loved without reason, without argument or proof or hard work. To have someone powerless not to love you is almost miraculous. What a gift to imagine that two people are bound to love each other no matter what, irrevocably, like a body pulled and held to the ground by Earth's gravity. A life can stand forever on the knowledge that it was loved like that, even just once. Please join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. Spirit of love, of life, of family, of friends, you God of many names, be with us in this space as we lift up our collective consciousness to share in this room right now together in this faithful community. We hope that those who are suffering at the hands of violence or poverty receive some relief, know they're loved. We ask that those who are suffering internal ills, physical, psychological, emotional, and otherwise, also feel loved, also feel relief and hope. We ask that those who are celebrating life's milestones, a new baby, an accomplishment achieved, falling in love, that they feel that we celebrate with them. Among us are folks who are experiencing all of this right now the complications that life brings, the conflicting emotions, the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, is enduring a struggle and is grateful for things that you'll never know, as are you and I. Let's sit with that and the other silent prayers of our hearts together in this sacred silence. I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies. Of all movie genre, rom-coms are the most easily predictable, which bores me senseless. Not to mention they're also sappy, cheesy, and super heteronormative, okay? (laughs) For the most part. There's some pretty bad lesbian rom-coms I've seen. 
I know that fans of these movies don't watch them for the writing or even for the acting, but to retreat into a simple story that doesn't require much of them, having spent an exhausting day filled with people and obligations, making all sorts of demands on them. Strange thing is, though, it's not my junk TV of choice. In real life, after all, what happens next is, is not at all as predictable. On my refrigerator at home, I have a lovely magnet that was a recent thank you gift from one of our high school grads this year that quotes Alan Saunders, life is what happens while we're making other plans. And every time I see it, not only is it a much needed reminder, but I get the John Lennon song where he quotes that beautiful boy stuck in my head, which is also an added perk. But it's so true. Life is what happens while we're making other plans. That lesson just keeps just smacking me in the face, often and hard. Because if there's any truth at all to Zodiac personality types, I am a true-to-form Virgo, control-freak-life planner. I mean, I have to know what's happening around every corner. Even if the plan changes, I want to know what the possible contingency plans might be. (laughs) I really do try to hide that well, but... uh, I have an idealistic fantasy about where I'll be and what I'll be doing five, ten, even fifty years hence. For as long as I can remember, this has been what I've done. And some of it has come to pass. Some of it really has. More than, honestly, I'm grateful. More than I ever thought would, truly. But almost none of it Seriously, almost none of it happened in the way that I thought it would, or in the timeline I was hoping it would happen. So there you go. I have no idea if there is an age. Please reassure me later if yes, at which hyper-planners such as myself calm down a bit and learn to go with the flow, let go of expectation. But my time as a chaplain taught me that those who know that they are dying, not always, but often, have so much to teach the living about this sort of stuff. Oftentimes, a chaplain becomes sort of a reverse midwife, ushering someone through death's door. The role of the chaplain when ministering to a person who has neared the end of their life is to kind of create and hold a space for the dying to be able to speak openly and say things that need to be said to someone who isn't just going to shut that conversation down. Loved ones avoiding their grief will say things like, Oh, don't talk that way, Dad. You're going to be all right, just like you were last time. It's a tremendous gift to be able to say, Yes, you're dying. What is that like for you? I love being able to give that gift. Amazingly, though, what I've learned is that, as cliche as it may sound, the truth is that I've often been given tremendous gifts in return. 
These parting gifts have come in the form of wisdom about life that the living would benefit from implementing before they find themselves in such a place of reflection at the end of life. For those who are aware that their earthly days are numbered, it's said that there are five things that they need to say in some way before they die. It's a universal. They are, thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And goodbye. This makes sense, of course. Gratitude would, we'd imagine, be up at the top of such a list, as would sorrow and regret. If a stock taking of any life is happening, every life will contain opportunities for both. You can bet money on that. An acknowledgement of both gratitude and that sorrow and regret, need for forgiveness, would surely help to wrap things up neatly and help allow someone to leave this world. Knowing that forgiveness has been extended before death, or at least making it known that forgiveness is desired, is as important as assuring others that they are loved. Very few of us deal with, um, very few of us reach death, rather, without having known grief ourselves. So when we're dying, we understand that. Saying a proper goodbye to loved ones becomes extremely important to the survivors. If, if the dying is able to offer that closure. So, I really, really loved Jim Burson. He was a member here longer than I've been alive, and he died this past year. I adored that man. I went to see him less than a couple of weeks before he did die, and we had a nice long talk. He struggled to catch his breath throughout and was on oxygen, but that didn't stop him reminiscing with me about his years with this church, his theologies ever-changing, or his ongoing concern for and curiosity about present-day struggles with injustice. We chatted until he was thoroughly wiped out from the strain of it all, but he made it clear he would go on talking for hours if he could. I asked him how often he would like for me to come visit. Oh, about every two weeks, he replied. You would like a visit from me in two weeks' time, I clarified. He and I both knew then that he would not be alive in two weeks' time. He looked up at me, looked me straight in the eye, and said, yes, I would like that. He was saying goodbye. He was doing so in a way that retained his dignity and was right in line with his personality. He wasn't one for a fuss to be made on his account. Without taking no for an answer, he then had me help him out of his chair so that he could give me a hug while standing. 
against my protests otherwise. He was so exhausted after that that he nearly fell back into his chair, if not for my help. He had the gentility, or the nerve, however you choose to see it, to apologize for not seeing me to the door. Jim had so much left to do. He had no death wish. Even in his 80s, he expressed wanting more time. But life had other plans. As a chaplain in San Francisco, I met a man I'll call Bob on my first, my very first overnight on-call shift. I was called to bring communion to a Catholic patient. That's all I knew. Catholic and wanted to take communion. It had been a busy night. And I mentioned to the nurse that the Eucharistic ministers would make their rounds the following morning. But I was told, no, that won't do. The patient wants communion now. I was irritated. So I shimmied out of my pajamas in the on-call room, put on my business clothes and my heels, and headed upstairs. That visit changed my life and my understanding of chaplaincy. Upon arrival, I noticed that the skin and bones patient had a tracheotomy, a hole in his throat, and a big sign above the bed that read NPO, an abbreviation for the Latin nil per os, meaning nothing by mouth. How is he going to take communion, I thought. I introduced myself and found that he communicated by scribbling notes on a legal pad. We chatted this way some, and I found out that he was a, few, a huge, huge fan of Thomas Merton, had a bunch of books of his on the bedside, a Trappist monk, writer, and pacifist. And I found out that he was a gay and hugely liberal and largely mystical Catholic man, and that he had lived a life filled with his progressive activism. I was nervous about this communion thing. I had never given communion before, and I knew I had to wing it. In the elevator, I had found a passage from the Gospel of Matthew that I figured I could read. And I asked him how he was hoping to take communion, and he pointed to me and wrote, I want you to take it on my behalf. Now, I'm very deliberate about not taking Christian communion. I feel it's inauthentic and disrespectful, personally, for me to do so, because I don't share this theology. And after all, I was known in seminary for saying, I love Jesus, I just don't want to eat him. <laughs> I would take communion at chapel services if it didn't, if the word said didn't turn it into Jesus. If it was about community, I'd, I'd partake, but I would respectfully decline if, if it was Jesus. So that being said, I was scared and feeling weird about it. But then I realized, you know, it, this isn't about me at all. So I ate the wafer and I drank the wine. Actually, it was grape juice. And I felt completely and totally spiritually nourished. Blew my mind. Couldn't believe it. This one little act, this ritual that I had 
made jokes about to deal with my discomfort around being oftentimes the one non-Christian in the room. And it did it for me because of the context. And he wrote down on his little pad, I feel as if I have taken it quite bodily. Thank you. I got to know this guy, Bob, quite well over the next several months that I was a resident there. He remains one of the kindest, most compassionate souls, courageous people I have ever met. The guy was present at Stonewall riots. He was a white ally for the Black Panther movement. He was just as radical and as loving as they come. And in our last conversation, we spoke our goodbyes very openly and hugged. He wrote down, I'm dying. I said, I know. How does it feel? He wrote, I'm scared. I said, what scares you the most about it? I've never done it before, he wrote. <laughs> but I've always wanted to be a saint. He looked up and he managed to smile at me. I get the feeling you're not talking about the politics of Roman Catholic canonization process, are you? I asked. He mouthed a big no. <laughs> and wrote, I have work to do all I can for justice down here. I'm excited to know that I can do so much more so differently from up there. I asked him to pray for me. As a hospital chaplain, I had the pleasure of meeting an elderly woman I'll call Alice, excuse me, hospice chaplain. And Alice was very elegant and joyful, despite the pain of her advancing cancer. I looked forward to our regular visits, even though I knew every story through her dementia she told and retold. I knew all of them by heart, but I loved hearing them as if they, it was the first time, each and every visit. And she would tear up when talking about the husband who had been deceased for 50 years. She spoke of her regrets and gave me amazing advice that served to boost my personal gratitude in unexpected amounts. Once she, when she was speaking about the depths of depression to which she had sunk in her grief following his death, she told me about her love of quilting and attributed her healing from the brink of despair to her sitting and quilting every night in front of the TV for at least a year, sitting there till she got too tired to stay awake. You can just about solve all the problems of the world with a needle and thread, she said. I had no idea what she meant by this, but I remember how it felt to hear. It felt like she knew that she wasn't much longer for this world and had just imparted onto me the summation of her wisdom in one simple phrase. Of course, the repetitive act of sewing did not take her grief away. Here she was, 50 years later, shedding tears for her love. Alice was reminding me 
that we are stronger beings than we have any idea about. We are. And spending time alone with debilitating grief is the only real way, facing it is the only real way to ever get on the other side and be able to function again. And that calm and focused creativity can bring about peacefulness. Now, I always say that I have just about the coolest job in the world here. And I do. I love this gig. But being a chaplain, when I remember these stories, was a pretty sweet gig, too. I mean, imagine getting paid to sit and listen to amazing, heart-wrenching, stirring, sometimes scandalously shocking stories and priceless nuggets of wisdom and get paid to do it. Just to sit and listen and receive all of that. Above all, the most important gift that the dying impart on the living is not some obvious yet true version of seize the day or life is short, live it while you can. It's not that, but it's the notion of letting go to the best laid plans, as they say, because life, this life, will require that of us. Yes, let's use this precious gift of time, this life, wisely. But what doing so requires of us is flexibility, fortitude, and faith that no matter how much the reins of our own destinies slip out of our imaginary grip, all will be well. That healing, peace, and even happiness may be found in the direst of circumstances. Not because of some half-baked theology that causes people to say things like, everything happens for a reason, and God never gives you more than you can handle in a day. That's crap! (laughs) There are days it's more than I can handle. I've grieved, so have you. And then also, there's gaping holes in that nonsense, that thinking, that are apparent when we are facing tragedy, stark injustices, and disease. That didn't happen for a reason, it happened. No one did that to good people. Not all of us get the heartbreaking yet glorious privilege of sitting at the bedside of the dying. Not all of us are afforded the opportunity to receive the spoken or silent wisdom that can land upon those when they have one foot in this world and one foot in the great mystery of death. But for those of us that receive that great present of such time, Let's share that message for their sake and for ours by living it in the time here that we have. Please join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice that are found in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fires of commitment. These we hold in our hearts 
until we are together again. Our benediction, these words are by Kenneth Collier today. I do not know where we go when we die, and I do not know what the soul is or what death is or when or why. What I know is that the song once sung cannot be unsung, and the life once lived cannot be unlived, and that the love once loved cannot be unloved. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.